0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 1101 podcast. Today, we're going to be doing a little bit of a crash course on Julius Caesar, talking about the first couple scenes that we've read so far. So today is Thursday, the 21st, uh, 2021. And what we're going to be talking about is so far, we've read Acts 1, scene 1 and 2. And we're going to talk about the characters so far, who they are, what their significance is so far and um, just a couple of other things from the play that maybe you didn't think about or maybe you missed it. So we're not gonna spend too much time on it, but we are gonna talk a little bit, just kind of get in the flow of things again. So in Act One, Scene One, we are entered into a street from Rome. So again, This takes place in Rome, Italy, obviously, Um, and a lot of the times um, the scenes, you know, where we picture movies are very, they're super specific. You have to remember that this was done in the Globe Theatre in England about 500 years ago. So the stage production wasn't, you know, super high end like it is today in a lot of plays. Um, I would say even a lot of the plays that we put on at Singer High School when we can, you know, those would probably put, put his place to shame as far as production value goes. Um, but that being said, so sometimes a lot of times uh, scenes that were involved would be very, very simple. So hence a street, you know? Um, but anyways, so we are we meet two characters, two characters as we learn in scene two will die because of their actions of scene one. But Flavius and Morellus they enter and they're disgusted by what they see. They see people running amok in the streets, people acting like it's Mardi Gras, the crazy party, and they're just so excited over the death of Pompey and Caesar's triumph over him. And this really irritates Flavius and Morellus because, you know, just months ago, you know, they the people of Rome would have been, as they put it, They would have climbed to the battlements, they would have gone to the highest tops of Rome, they would have gone to the chimney tops to see great Pompey make his way down the streets. The shores of Tiber, which Tiber gets referenced a lot, and again, that's a river in Europe, but um, the Tiber would shake from the cheers of the people as Pompey walked down the streets. And again, unfortunately, people didn't, you know, the people are very quick to change so this is going to be a topic that we cover a lot and that's mom mentality so in case you're unfamiliar with the term mom mentality is when a group of people who normally wouldn't think one way start thinking a certain way just because other people do it and a lot of people believe that this is some sort of like evolutionary trait because we are inherently pack animals in a way as this pandemic has kind of shown a lot of people are struggling right now because they can't be with their pack they can't be with their group of people and mom mentality tends to persuade people to think a certain way even though that they know it's not very logical but just they kind of go with the flow of what everybody else is doing and so Flavius and Morellis are upset now granted they are not commoners they are you know they're higher ups they're senators and you, you see a lot of division between the senators and the common people. Casca uh, in scene two refers to them as a rabblement, you know, and talks about their poor hygiene. And so, you know, there's definitely a lot of elitism, which means that there's like the separation between elites and the common. Um, but that being said, they're irritated by what they see. And then we have this exchange between the cobbler, the second citizen, um, in some versions they refer to him as the cobbler and the and the uh online text that we are reading right now just refers to him as second citizen but again he's a cobbler he's a he repairs shoes he has an exchange and it's kind of funny because he's a commoner but at the same time he's like confusing these supposed supposed like well-educated men he's tricking them into like his play of words Which you wouldn't expect that from a commoner to be able to outwit or outsmart somebody like Flavius or Morellus, but he's basically, he's messing with them and they are not getting it at first until like, they just get frustrated and like yell at him until he tells them that they're celebrating the return of Pompey. I'm sorry, excuse me, the return of Caesar. So, that being said, as um, the scene ends, we see Flavius and Relius, they go their separate ways, one to the capital, one a different way, and they take down all of the decorations that people have been hanging up um, for not only the return of Caesar for his victory over Pompey, but it is also the Feast of Lupercal, which, as I mentioned before in our meeting, is the... um, celebration of fertility and again if you're not familiar with what fertility means it means basically like new life um the ability for um animals you know to give birth and not just animals but plants too obviously spring uh is an important thing in a lot of civilizations remember that this is in rome 2000 years ago and um it's not they don't have the luxuries that we do so at one point in the story, we hear Cassius refer to Caesar as, you know, we survived the winters as well as Caesar does because, you know, a lot of people didn't survive winter. You know, it wasn't like it is now where we have our insulated homes, heaters and all that winter was a real thing that you had to survive. Um, and so there was that part of it too. There is that aspect. Um, let's move on to scene two like i said we're just gonna move really quick through this and i just want to kind of review some of the stuff that we talked about but also hopefully give you some new information so one of the things that we learn a lot about in scene two is caesar's um his physical ailments his physical limitations. so we learn a lot first we learn that either calpurnia or him is sterile i would be more inclined to think that um Caesar is having the issues with fertility and not Calpurnia. Um, I don't know that for sure, and this is a guess on my part, but I only guess that just because he has other physical limitations that could contribute to his infertility and inability to um, have Calpurnia have his child. Um, So there's that. That's something that we learn is like, oh, guess, uh, guess Caesar is not able to you know, get his wife pregnant. That's definitely something that a god would be able to do, as Cassius keeps referring to him. But we also learned that he has the falling sickness or epilepsy. And so he's prone to seizures. So we learn about a time in Spain where he had a seizure and the color flew from his lips because of the loss of blood. And um, he had to have Titinius give him water to, because, and he sounded in a court, which, yes is sexist but he sounded like a frail girl as cassius called him and he also tries to he sometimes doesn't know his own limitations too and i think that that's something that's kind of telling about caesar but he basically tries to get cassius to cross the river the tiber again going back to the tiber and when he does that he, he he gets he gets Cassius to swim across the river, which Cassius is like, okay, I'll swim across the river. And when he does that, he looks back and sees Caesar, and Caesar is like, help, help, I'm drowning. And when and so he has to go back and save not only swim across the Tiber himself, but he now is he's now tasked with carrying Caesar across the river himself. So it's like. Not only is he a god, but he's constantly needed of rescue. And obviously this is something, you know, it's kind of interesting because Shakespeare is like calling into question the idea of kings and queens in a way, which he performed for kings and queens in his time. He, you know, the monarchy of England isn't like the monarch back in his time wasn't like the monarchy it is now. Kings and queens today in England don't really mean anything. They're just like glorified celebrities in a lot of ways because the parliament, which is like their Congress, you know, they pretty much run things now. And the prime minister, um, back in his time, though, the king in England were the head of state. They were the leaders of not only the government, but also the church. And so he's in some ways being kind of rebellious and like calling into questions like, look, kings and queens are just people. They're not like real uh, they're they're not gods like people make them out to be, um, or at least that's one interpretation of it. But anyway, so that's one of the things that we learn in scene two is just that Caesar is not perfect. He's definitely got some physical limitations. We also learned some other flaws about Cassius and Brutus. Both Cassius and Brutus are like the leaders of the uh, conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar, which is building right now. Cassius is very jealous, very petty. Um, has a lot of, I guess you could say a lot of self-esteem issues because he constantly is comparing himself to Caesar and Caesar's greatness and saying, it's like, well, I'm just as good as him. He's no better than me kind of thing. So he definitely has some ego issues. Um, and Caesar sees that he knows that he doesn't trust Cassius and he's, is definitely right not to trust him because he's actively plotting his murder. Um, he, he refers to Cassius and says, I wish you were fatter not because he wants him to be just some fat guy, but he's wanting him to be fatter because again in that time period um, if you're fat that means you're living well, you're surviving you're not you're not wanting for anything you're not like near death um, but Cassius as Caesar describes him looks hungry and has a lean look. He doesn't smile he doesn't take joy in the simple things in life like Antony does. So that's something that definitely is a flaw of Cassius is that, He's very envious. He doesn't, um, and again, going back to a lot of like Christian um, values of the time, because obviously England being a very Christian nation, um, that and being something being envious, somebody being envious would definitely be something that's like a big no no in that time period. Um, in addition to Cassius, you have Brutus. Brutus seems like a good guy. He seems like generally he wants to do the right thing. And a lot of people can make that argument. Other people can make the argument that he has a little bit of an ego too. Like he needs to be the savior. He has a savior complex. He needs to be the guy. He's like, I'm here to, I'm going to fix all the problems, you know? Um, Caesar is my friend, but I'm, but I don't trust what's happening right now. I don't trust the power. Even though they are not even giving Caesar really a chance or anything, Everybody, basically everything that the conspiracy is, they're hypothetically thinking, oh, Caesar's gonna get all this power and he's gonna do all these awful things without even knowing what he's gonna do. They're just basically speculating, they're guessing about what his actions are gonna be. And so that's kind of like what's been going on so far. Then we hear from Casca, which Casca's a bumbling idiot, but that's okay. Um, he he's well-intentioned, at least from the conspirator's standpoint. So even Brutus refers to him as like, he used to be so smart during school. I don't know what happened to him, basically. And Cassius is like, yeah, but he gets things done. So Cassius is, or Casca, excuse me, there's a lot of names with C's in there. So Cassius and Casca are going to have dinner to discuss the next, basically the next steps in their plot. Uh, Prior to that, though, Casca tells him about how Caesar was offered a crown three times, even though it wasn't really a crown. It was a coronet, which is like, um, again, a bunch of vines and uh, plants, uh, basically like a fake, fake crown, essentially. Um, And Antony offers it to him three times. And Antony's like his best friend. He's like Caesar's lapdog, essentially. And so Antony, like offers him the crown three times the crowd cheers and again the epilepsy kicks in again because they all smell so bad they have such bad breath um, from them cheering that caesar like passes out starts foaming at the mouth and some people are like saying oh poor dear i feel so bad for him and one of my favorite lines that Casca has is that um which is a really big dig at the commenters and basically calling them a bunch of idiots is that um he says that oh, well, if the, if if he had stabbed their mothers, you know, they would have still done the same thing and said, oh, poor dear, I feel so bad for him for killing our mothers. So again, that was just kind of like a funny scene. But anyway, so as we read this, one of the things that we are going to be talking about is rhetoric. Um, we will cover this more next week or this week, depending on when you're listening to it. But um, rhetoric is just the art of persuasion. And as we can already see, uh Cassius is persuading uh Brutus. He's convincing him of why they need to take action against Caesar. And not only is he convincing him like directly, he's also gonna be kind of like sneaky and he's gonna forge a bunch of letters and make it look like a bunch of Roman citizens are saying, Brutus, you have to save us, you know, turning Brutus into kind of like Again, I know I say I'm not a Star Wars fan, but I'm going to reference Star Wars again. He's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's uh, like the hero that has to save everybody. Um, And that's basically where we're at right now. So anyways, I know the language can be difficult. I know it can be kind of tricky. But again, like I said, just stick with it in the classes. Listen to these podcasts. I'll give you some recaps occasionally. I'll make sure that you guys are understanding what's going on. But anyways, I hope this was helpful and I look forward to talking to you. Please listen to this. And again, um, if you have any questions, let me know. Um, There might not be a quiz on this, but we will definitely be discussing this podcast. So there will be some points either directly or indirectly from listening to this. So hopefully you listened. And anyways, I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. All right, I know the podcast technically ended, but it hasn't because I'm still talking. So um, I'm going to do a top five. haven't done one of those in a while. So today we're going to do for my top five is top five concerts that I've attended. Um, And really, you will probably have no idea who any of these bands are because I'm like a dinosaur and I listen to punk rock from the 90s mostly. So um, anyways... Here we go, my top five concerts that I have attended, not in any order, but first one I would say, and this is actually probably my favorite, was Flogging Molly. Um, They're actually the band that I played the song for you um, today for my first and third period, and that I will be playing for my fifth and sixth period tomorrow. Um, But they're Irish punk band, they are amazing, they um, have a... um, accordion player, they have a banjo player, a violinist. Uh, They are a lot of fun, very energetic. um, Lots of mosh pits, so good times were had by all. My second favorite band that I've seen, and I've seen them twice, uh, my favorite time was actually the last time I saw them, because I actually saw them in San Diego um, at a really cool little venue. And I love small venues because I love being like right there. You know, when you're in like giant stadiums and there's a million people, you could like, they look like dots. So I definitely like smaller venues, but Streetlight Manifesto is a ska punk band, which ska is kind of like a mixture of like, it's like faster paced reggae almost. Um, So imagine that, but with some punk. So you got some trumpets, trombone, saxophone, you got the horn section, you got the fast paced drums, and they're just a lot of fun and he does, the singer and uh, guitarist for them just has awesome lyrics, which I love. Um, my third favorite, um, I've seen them twice now, and each time has been really good. Actually, I've seen them three times because I saw them, saw them, I think I was in middle school or high school the first time I saw them. But then I've seen them twice in the last like eight years. But the band is called Tool, and they're a lot different than a lot of the other music I listen to. They're a harder rock band. Um, very popular band, um, but they are really, they have some really long songs, but really interesting sound. Definitely got their own style and they have a lot of crazy music videos, uh, sometimes very disturbing music videos that go along with their sometimes disturbing songs, but it's still really cool. Um, then another band that I have seen that I love, uh, is the distillers. So again, my feminist punk rock coming through again. And uh, I saw them in Santa Ana and they were just a lot of fun there. It was actually a reunion. Um, they've been on hiatus or broken up for several years and they got back together and it was really cool to see. Um, and then finally, one of my favorites, and I will always have fond memories of this, is the Vans Warp Tour, which Vans as in the shoe and you know all that sort of thing. But anyways, it was a skate punk uh, rock festival. I think they did a uh, 20th anniversary this last summer uh, before the summer before COVID. Uh, so I guess that'd be 2019, but um, tons of punk bands playing and it was just a lot of fun. So that was my top five for concerts. And thanks for listening.